Okay, a typhoon had temporarily stranded a monkey on an island in a secure, protected place while waiting for the raging waters to recede. He spotted a fish swimming against the current. It seemed obvious to the monkey that the fish was struggling and in need of assistance. Being of kind heart, the monkey resolved to help the fish. A tree precariously dangled over the very spot where the fish seemed to be struggling. And at considerable risk to himself, the monkey moved far out on a limb, reached down and snatched the fish from the threatening waters. Immediately scurrying back to the safety of his shelter, he carefully laid the fish on dry ground. For a few moments, the fish showed excitement, but soon settled into a peaceful rest. Joy and satisfaction swelled inside the monkey. He had successfully helped another creature. The monkey had good intentions. But his failure to understand the culture of the fish led to disastrous consequences. And when you and I seek to communicate Christ to those whose cultures are different from our own, there's potential for equally disastrous consequences if we fail to understand and to adapt to the cultures of those we want to reach. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles, he's very aware of these pitfalls. And in the whole section of 1 Corinthians, from the beginning of chapter 8 through to the end of chapter 10, he gives us some clues to help us avoid the worst of them. And the first point is this, that Christian truth requires us to differentiate between the gospel and culture. But first of all, what is culture? Well, we could have long discussions about this, but time does not permit. But let me suggest a few things. Culture includes those obvious external things, like food. We enjoyed some Iranian uh, biscuits at lunchtime, and there are some more here for you to enjoy uh, with refreshments afterwards. Food, clothing, architecture, music, art. Then there's history and literature. An Iranian student I met a couple of years ago insisted that if I was to understand Iranian culture, I had to read some Iranian poets. Then there's language. And then there's every kind of uh, communication, our verbal and body language. Then there are social structures, family, society, the way we relate to each other. All of these things differ from one culture to another. And learning methods, even. One of the problems, I'm sure Andrew could tell us uh, more, that international students, particularly from Asia, have a problem when they come to the West to, the study, to study, is plagiarism. Because in Asian, East Asian cultures particularly, you show that you know what you're talking about by quoting your teachers almost verbatim. That's the way of showing you respect your teachers. But you can run into all sorts of problems with plagiarism if you do that here. Cultures, all of these things, and many more besides. But two very important things uh, before we get into the text that you need to understand about culture. Firstly, culture is learnt. It's not something you inherit through your genes. It's not the same as race. A few years ago, Catherine and I had a Norwegian lodger. While Bjorn was with us, his girlfriend came to visit. And when she arrived at the door, we had a bit of a shock. Because standing at the door was a petite, honey-skinned Asian woman. Not typically Norwegian. 
Now, Olag was genuinely Norwegian. She spoke Norwegian as a native. She related culturally as a Norwegian. But she was Asian by birth. Korean parents had given her up for adoption when she was just two weeks old. And she'd spent all of her life, bar those first few weeks, in Norway, in a Norwegian home, learning the Norwegian language and culture. There was nothing Korean about her, except for her looks. Culture is learnt. Secondly, all of us treat our own culture as though it were the centre of the universe. It takes precedence over everybody else's. Ours is better than everyone else's. And this attitude can express itself in some very subtle ways, but nevertheless reflecting some quite deep-seated attitudes. My favourite is the following quotation. Forgive my accent, those of you who speak these languages. The French call it a couteau. The Germans call it a messer. But we call it a knife, which is, after all, what it really is. So now let's turn to 1 Corinthians 9. And the basic principle that Paul sets out here is that Christians should adapt. The question is, what should I adapt? Well, there's an apparent contradiction in these verses that gives us a clue. In verse 20, Paul writes about being not under the law. And in verse 21, he says he's not free from God's law. How can both be true at the same time? Well, the answer is he uses law in two subtly different ways. In verse 20, the law refers to the ceremonial laws, things like circumcision, the food laws, the sacrificial system. All of these have been fulfilled in Christ, and they're no longer required for the Christian Our salvation does not depend on them. They remain part of Jewish culture. And so in verse 20, Paul is able to say to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law. Now, the second way Paul uses the law is to describe the law of Christ. In verse 21, he speaks of being under Christ's law. The Christian is now a slave to Christ, living under his rule. We remain subject to his teachings in all things. So you wouldn't hear the apostle saying, I became a thief in order to reach thieves, or anything like that. Paul's flexibility, therefore, is with reference to culture and not to the gospel. The law which forms the culture of the Jews, he's willing to put it off, or to put it back on again, depending on who he's with. The law which is Christ's law, which is the gospel, he will not put off under any circumstances. He's permanently committed to it. Verse 19, though I'm free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. With regard to culture, Paul will flex as far as he possibly can. With respect to the gospel, he will not flex at all. And so Philip Jensen, the Australian, once said, we must demonstrate our commitment to the unchanging truths of the gospel by our willingness to change anything and everything else. It's an important principle. We must demonstrate our commitment to the unchanging truths of the gospel by our willingness to change anything and everything else. That's a very important principle. Why? Well, what happens if we don't distinguish between what the gospel is and what culture is? 
Well, if we don't, we're in danger of either hiding the gospel altogether underneath our culture or distorting the gospel. Let me uh, give you an illustration. A few years ago, I went to India to visit a former international student in his home. Vijay was a Hindu. He hadn't become a Christian here. But while I was in his town, he thought I'd like to see a church. In fact, as far as he was aware, there wasn't a church in his town. So he took me on a train journey to the next town. And my first and only experience of train travel in India was just like you see on the movies. People hanging out of the windows, animals everywhere. It was pandemonium and lots of fun for an hour. (laughs) When we got to the next town, about 40, 40 miles away, and we walked out of the station, I knew immediately where the church was. This Victorian spire soared above all the, these uh, you know, Indian uh, houses and shops. We took the half a mile walk to the, to the church and when we got there it really could have been taken off an English street corner. We went through the doors, rows of wooden pews just like you find in a typical Anglican church. I picked up the hymn book, Hymns Ancient and Modern in English. What does that say to the millions of Hindu villagers living in the plains of North India about Christianity. It says it's English. It's foreign. It's nothing to do with you. But that, of course, isn't true. The gospel doesn't require them to become English, to speak English, to, you know, to, to worship in an English uh, building. Why on earth would an Indian, of all people, want to become English? They got rid of us 60 years ago. In order to demonstrate that the gospel is for everybody, we must, as best we can, strip the gospel of our own cultural clothing and dress it in the clothes of the culture that we want to win. Now, through this talk, a number of quotations are going to come from our mission partners to illustrate what I'm saying. And Catherine's going to begin by telling us something that Anna Vines wrote for us about this. The first one. We are called to take everything that we think is right and normal from our own culture, our background, our understanding, especially the Bible, and lay it down. We have to be like a blank canvas for God. Then, with wisdom and prayer, we allow God to paint our canvas so that every culture we come across can see their culture in us, as well as God's love for us and his spirit in us. See, if we fail to do that, what we will communicate is that the gospel is part of our culture, uh, not something of universal relevance. And that would not be true. It would be heresy. We mustn't attempt to reshape the gospel for that culture, but we can and we must reshape our behaviour, our patterns of communication, and our application of the gospel to different cultures. As Paul says in verse 22... I, to the weak I became weak, to win the weak I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. Anna, there in Sierra Leone, she's learnt Creole, the main language, as well as greetings in three different tribal languages. She's taken on a, tri- a tribal name to show that she's embraced their culture. She always tries to dress modestly. Sierra Leone's predominantly Muslim country. She says she makes sure her knees and shoulders are covered so as not to offend anyone. 
And Anna's also very conscious that in Sierra Leone, relationships are seen as much more important than achieving tasks. And so she says, Every time I come to walk up my street, I have to make a conscious effort to greet and talk to everyone I see, which is often not what I want to do after a tiring day of work. But it's important to show people that I care for them and don't see myself as above them. Andrew Sadler, although working in the UK, he's relating to people overseas all the time, and he's written about Western directness in speech and relationships. I know that in many cultures, straight talking just doesn't work. It requires endless patience to keep going around the houses until eventually you get where you want to be. Being direct will alienate people. They don't appreciate it. Thank you. Both Anna and Andrew have worked out that our Western cultural values are not necessarily gospel values. And they've differentiated what is the gospel and what is culture. But what about here in Oxford? What about us? These verses don't simply apply to pioneer missionaries, whether of the first or the 21st centuries. They apply to all of us. And first and foremost, they apply to our attitudes towards those who are different. How do we think about the cultures of other people groups, of Asians, of Chinese, of Poles, other Eastern Europeans, or simply those who are ethnically English, but still very different from us culturally? If we're to live as disciples of Jesus in this global village, we too must learn to embrace other cultures for the sake of the gospel. And Paul's flexibility over cultural issues in this chapter is precisely because of his passion to see people saved from judgment. He knows that Christ died for all peoples, tribes, languages and nations. And he desires above all else that some of these might be saved. Peter and Lisa Vernon have spoken about the need to change the way in which they speak when ministering to men in prison. People who are socially marginalised, or many in prison, need things put in a very simple way, so we have to keep our vocab simple. Theological debates don't cover that much, but personal stories are important. We have to open ourselves up to talk more about our mistakes and failures, so that they can see how Jesus has helped us, and that we haven't always had been sorted. And Anna also writes, as I work here, I've done my best to really understand the culture so that I can understand what it means for me to be all things to the people for the sake of the gospel. So there's a, a desire in them to see the gospel communicated to those that are different. And if we don't share that passion to pass on the gospel to those who are different from us, maybe if we don't share that desire to share it with those who are the same as us, but certainly, those who are different to us, we need to ask God to change our hearts. Because I think it would be hard in this city not to know or to come across people of different cultures and languages. 22% of Oxford's population are from a minority ethnic group. 16% have a mother tongue other than English, representing 60 different languages. God's brought them here for a purpose that we might be witnesses to them of God's goodness and his salvation. We must ask him to give us love for them and a desire that they might be saved. 
A love that will drive us perhaps to learn some of their language, to eat their food, to listen to their stories. A love that will not expect them to become like us in order to be saved. And, and uh, yeah, they can be Christians and remain culturally Indian or Algerian or Chinese or whatever it may be. So firstly, Christian truth requires that we uh, separate what is the gospel from what is culture. Secondly, Christian love requires us not to stand on our rights. Look at verse 19 again. Though I am free, Paul acknowledges that he's free, and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. If my first point was about what to adapt, the second is about how we should adapt or in what spirit should we adapt. The context for these few verses, as I said earlier, the whole section from chapter 8 verse 1 to chapter 11 verse 1, where there are two main issues. Firstly, to eat or not to eat, that is the meat that had been offered to idols. And then secondly, to be paid or not to be paid for doing Christian ministry. Firstly, meat offered to idols in chapter 8. In Corinth, much of the meat that was served, sorry, that was sold in the markets had been involved in animal sacrifice in one of the temples. Young Christians who'd been saved from a background of idol worship did not want anything to do with this meat. It would draw them back into that kind of idol worship. It was too closely connected with their former way of life. And they wanted to keep away from it. And it was good for them to keep away from it. Longer standing Corinthian Christians were arguing that there's no problem at all for them to eat this meat. They were free to do so. And Paul doesn't contradict them. Indeed, he says, you're free. But that's not the point. The point isn't our freedoms. The point is other people and their need for the gospel. The gospel's always focused on the other person, not on ourselves. Our model here is Jesus, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. His was a cross-centred ministry, giving up his own rights for the sake of others. So let's see what Paul writes in chapter 8, verses 9 and following. Be careful, he writes, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Right? He acknowledges that they have rights, but don't let them become a stumbling block for the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what's sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. So that's the meat offered to idols. But secondly, to be paid or not to be paid, that's the question in the first half of chapter 9. And here we discover a lesson about biblically guided cultural adaptation in that gospel ministry sometimes means we don't adapt to the culture. Corinthian culture defined the value of their particular philosophical hero, guru, by the amount that they paid to them. 
The more they paid them, the better they looked, the, the guru, and the better the supporters looked because they were associated with this great person. If Paul had just adapted to the culture in some unprincipled way, he'd have taken their money because that's what you did if you were an itinerant preacher. But no, Paul wants them to know that the gospel comes free of charge. And on this occasion, the gospel requires him not to adapt. And in the chapter 9, verses 19 to 23, it seems that Paul takes up a kind of third cultural position from which he can become a Jew to win the Jews or to which he can become Greek to win the Greeks. He manages to separate in his own mind what were Christian biblical values which he could not compromise and everything else which we could. And his guiding principle for cultural adaptation is will it help people to be saved? If it will, he'll adapt. If it won't, then he won't adapt. His own preferences always came second. He understood that Christian love requires that we don't stand on our own rights. Even though they are rights, we don't stand on them. Amy Ski gives a very good illustration of this. Because of my ultimate freedom, I'm able to sacrifice some of my daily freedoms in order that I can identify with people where they are, ensuring that my behaviour does not create a barrier to the gospel. So, for example, I give up my freedom to have male friends around my house, because even though there is nothing immoral about it, if I did have them to my house, people would not think I was an honourable woman, and this would hinder my witness. This is not to say that we should be always concerned about helping people perceive us, but as much as possible, we should be looking to ensure the only offence is the cross, not our behaviour even if it is only perceived as offensive behaviour in one culture. You see, here's Amy not standing on her rights. She knows that having male friends round wouldn't be immoral, but she would be perceived as being immoral. And so she doesn't do it for the sake of the gospel. However, picking up the other point of Paul's, that sometimes cultural adaptation, um, the gospel requires that we don't adapt, Amy's also got an illustration that she goes on with that same story. Of course, this can create conflicts. So, for example, my neighbour who lived upstairs is a girl from Iran who often had male friends around her house. I did not do this. However, my friendship with her did affect my reputation in the community. This is where we have to be willing to identify with people who don't have a good reputation remembering that Jesus identified with them, and it is not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. Anna's work in Sierra Leone puts her in a similar situation. In my work, I go to disabled children's houses to give exercises, advice, equipment, love and prayer and support to the child and the families. Disabled children are considered to be devils in this culture. So the families are encouraged by their communities to return them to the devil through a ceremony in the bush, and the child is left there to die. These families need a lot of encouragement to look after their child in a world where there is no support for disabilities from the government. I spend my days on the ground playing and doing exercises with children, sometimes in slums or very dirty places, 
to show the families the love of Jesus and how Jesus cares for these children. We speak openly about Jesus and pray for the child at the end of every visit. It's not easy, but I need to show these families that the children are worth investing in and worth loving, despite all the community pressure and rejection. Thank you. Note that, despite all the community pressure and rejection. So she's standing against the culture because the gospel demands it. And it's costly. It's costly for her and any who want to follow that practice. Dan and Carol Brown have discovered that being a guest at a wedding in Turkey can be costly too in financial terms. At a wedding of an Alevi woman, that's a minority group in Turkey, the only acceptable gift is gold. So Carol was going out this week to buy uh, an item of gold uh, for the bride. Christian love requires us uh, sometimes not to do what is easiest, cheapest, or most comfortable for us, but what is appropriate and helpful for the other person. Christian love requires us not to stand on our rights, not to expect things to be done in a way that makes us feel comfortable. The gospel and other people's needs need, uh, come first. So wherever we are in the world, whether we're in Sierra Leone or Turkey or in Kurdistan or here in Oxford, uh, if we want to extend the gospel amongst people of different cultures, then we need to learn uh, to, to do things differently to learn how to relate socially in different ways, perhaps visiting instead of inviting, uh, having greater flexibility and generosity with our time, uh, eating different foods and learning different meal table etiquette, <laughs> all sorts of things. So who are the people uh, in your neighbourhood or workplace who are culturally different uh, from you? And how are you going to show them the reality of Christ and the truth of the gospel? Whether it's international students, a neighbour from Poland or Pakistan, a colleague from Spain or Singapore, it will always require a degree of cultural flexibility. And if believers from other cultures find their way into our church family as believers or inquirers, then some of that flexibility may need to be applied to the way in which we do church. Uh, we may need to adapt to using different languages, using different music, different teaching methods. We need to be open to that if we're going to reach the multicultural community that makes up East Oxford. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, as those who've received his love, we're the ones who can dare to be different our security is in him. I was very touched with what Amy said uh, in, in, in that little excerpt that she talked about that she's free, uh, but that she gives them up. But our security is in Jesus, and so we should be free to adapt or not to adapt, even when it's costly. And the self-sacrifice of the cross should be our model in cross-cultural ministry. So then Christian truth requires us to differentiate gospel and culture. Christian love requires us not to stand on our rights. And then very briefly, Christian blessings uh, require us to engage in cross-cultural ministry. Verse 19, though I'm free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. In verse 22, to the weak I became weak, to win the weak. 
I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. Paul's motivated by this desire to see people saved. But he goes much further than this in verse 23. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Given everything that Paul has said up to this point, you'd expect him to say that they may share in its blessings. But now he says, so that I may share in its blessings. And it's true that the blessings of the gospel to us as we share it with others is great. C.T. Studd, the 19th century aristocrat and England cricketer, wrote these words. He said, I've tasted almost all the pleasures that this world can give, but those pleasures were as nothing compared to the joy that the leading uh, of that one soul to the Lord gave me. There is a very real blessing in putting ourselves out, in making those sacrifices uh, for the sake of the gospel. So whether God calls you overseas, and maybe there are some here tonight whom he is calling overseas, uh, or the call is to stay here, Paul's message is the same. If we're to truly enjoy the blessings of being Christians, the blessings of the gospel, if we're to pass it on to others wherever God places us, we'll always need to put ourselves out for the sake of the gospel. It's not an option for a Christian to cling on to his, own, his or her own culture. Learning from the monkey's uh, mistakes, we must adapt ourselves, our ways of life, and our communication. According to the Apostle Paul, such adaptation is a gospel imperative, and it leads, for us, to gospel blessings. Though I'm free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Let's pray together. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the good news of the gospel. Thank you for the Lord Jesus who came not to be served but to serve and to give up his life as a ransom for many. We pray this evening that you would so work in us by your spirit that we might model ourselves on him, that we might be willing to give up our rights for the sake of the gospel so that others might hear the good news of Jesus and be saved. Thank you, Lord, for the power of the gospel that it will indeed uh, save people Greeks and uh, Jews and Gentiles alike. And we pray that we may be those who have the courage and the conviction to take the gospel out into the world to cross cultures, whether overseas or here in East Oxford. Uh, please change us, transform us. And as we do that, we pray you'd bless us. You bless us by seeing fruit for our labours, seeing people coming to Christ. And you bless us as we see those people integrated into the life of the church, that we might become truly a multicultural, worshipping community, uh, gaining a taste of heaven, uh, where we know one day there'll be representatives of every tribe and nation, language and culture. Mm. So work in us, Lord, we pray, uh, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen.